0: and Welcome back to From Complex to Queens, Amazing Avenues Minor League Podcast. I'm Steve Saipa, and I will have Ken Levin and Thomas Henderson on in a little bit, but this week we're going to jump right into things, and we are going to check up on the Mets Minor League affiliates first and see how they did this week. So Syracuse Mets, they played seven games against the Rochester Red Wings this week, and they went two and four. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Steve, 2 plus 4 is 6. I thought you just said they played 7 games. All right, check this. Sunday's afternoon game, it ended in a tie. I will say that again. Sunday afternoon's contest between Syracuse and Rochester ended in a tie. David Thompson, he had a a game-tying home run in the bottom of the 7th inning with 2 outs. And he made it a 3-3 game, and then it started raining, and the game was called early because of the rain. And because Syracuse and Rochester don't play each other again this season, and don't have an opportunity to resume this one, it goes down as a tie, which doesn't exactly impact either one's win-loss record. So that's good, I guess. The Syracuse Mets didn't lose another one, but they didn't win either. Um, also of note, the last three games of the series, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, both teams were playing as their food alter egos. So the Syracuse Mets were the Syracuse Salt Potatoes, which is a potato boiled in extremely salty water. Very obvious. And the Rochester Red Wings were playing as the Rochester Garbage Plates, which apparently, according to the Rochester website, a garbage plate is a... Rochester area dish made of either chopped hamburger meat or chopped hot dogs that are mixed with home fries and macaroni salad. And then pasta sauce is poured on top. And that sounds absolutely disgusting. But whatever, embrace, embrace what you got, I guess, because I don't really think Rochester has much else, but whatever. So, anyway, both teams won a game during the Food Series. They lost a game during this Food Series, and then they tied on Sunday. So, because Syracuse had a plus one run differential in those three games, that gave them the edge, and it gave them bragging rights, and it won them an eight-foot Golden Fork Trophy in this very special, quote-unquote, Duel of the Dishes series. So... Interesting stuff happening upstate. Binghamton Rumble Ponies now, speaking of upstate, they went 3 and 3 in their, um, series against the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. And that leaves them at 46 and 53 on the season. Now, they are starting this upcoming week a series against the Richmond Flying Squirrels and then after that they play the Portland Sea Dogs and the Reading Fighting Phils to wrap up the season. So they have a 3 and 3 record against Richmond this year. They have a 9 and 8 record against Portland and a 3 and 3 record against Reading. So it's literally one game over 500 against these three teams. So honestly, their their next month of the season could go either way. Obviously catching up to the first place Somerset Patriots not happening, but Ending the season above 500, it is a possibility. So hopefully they do well in these next couple of weeks. Brooklyn Cyclones, they went four and three against the Aberdeen Ironbirds, so that leaves them at 39 and 61 on the year. They gained a half game on the first place Hudson Valley Renegades, but when you're 23 and a half games back, does that really matter much? And finally, the St. Lucie Mets. Last but not least, the good old St. Lucie Mets. They went 3-3 against the Daytona Tortugas. So that leaves them at 52-47 and 47 on the season. Usually going 500 ain't bad. But unfortunately for St. Lucie, going 500 this week was not good enough. Because the Jupiter Hammerheads, they went 6-1 and against the Palm Beach Cardinals this week. And they leapfrogged St. Lucie in the standings. So... For the first time in in months, St. Lucie is not in first place in the low A southeast-east. Uh, the Hammerheads have a 54-46 and 46 record. They are a game and a half in front of St. Lucie. And interestingly enough, the two teams are going to be playing each other this upcoming week. So definitely is going to be a really important week with some playoff implications, depending on how either team does so the last couple of weeks we've been recording very positive podcasts why i don't know it's not like the mets have been particularly good it's not like the Mets minor league system is particularly great so we don't really have a reason to celebrate necessarily but i figure you know what that just keeps positivity going so a few weeks ago we talked about the players who've been recognized as either top 50 or top 100 prospects in um, MLB Prospect Pipeline's list, Baseball America's list, and Baseball Prospectus' list, midseason list, that is. And last week, we talked about players who are probably going to get moved up onto Amazing Avenue's 2022 Mets Top 25 Prospect lists. So this week, each of us, we're going to pick a player and talk about the how, hows and the whys regarding how the players improve to the point that they're most likely going to wind up on Next year's list. So the player that I wanted to talk about this week, who's made some real and hopefully some sustained gains this season is Jake Mangum. Uh, Mets drafted him at a Mississippi State University in 2019 after basically having one of the best careers all time there on uh, his four years. He has a cumulative 357, 420, 457 batting line. And his 383 hits that he logs, that's the most ever in program history, and it's the most ever in SEC history. So the book on him, at least in regards to the bat, was that he was a guy who would make contact. He'd put the ball in play. He'd slap singles all around the field with occasional extra base hit. And that's pretty much it. He didn't walk too much. He didn't hit for too much power. Um... He drew 75 walks in exactly 1,200 plate appearances. So that's a 6.3 walk percentage. And then of his 383 hits, 73 were doubles, 10 were triples, and 5 were homers. So that leaves him with an isolated slugging of exactly 100, which is um, pretty below average. About 200 is like average. Um, for what it's worth, those extra base hits, they break down 19% double rate. A 2% triple rate and then a 1% home run rate. So after he went pro, the Mets sent him to the Brooklyn Cyclones, who were uh, at the time still part of uh, New York Penn League, short A. And in 53 games there, he hit 247, 337, 297, which is underwhelming um, due to a couple of factors. Most notably, though, the 287 bat bip that he was running which was probably a result of the other most notable thing holding him back that year, which was basically just the fatigue of playing um, a full season with, with the Bulldogs, 67 games, and then another 53 games right after with the Cyclones. But basically, even though his numbers were very underwhelming, he still fit that basic profile that I described below. Um, the walk rate was about the same, strikeout was, rate was about the same, his ISO plummeted to, you know, if 100 was bad, his ISO with the Cylons was 049, which is beyond bad, I guess. But, again, the guy played basically, you know, if he, if he played about 60 games in a college season, he basically played two consecutive seasons back-to-back, which affects even the best college player and mangum arguably was the best college player available or senior i should say available in the 2019 draft so he started the 2021 season this year with the cyclones again um though they were the new high a version of the cyclones but he got promoted after about a week or so he got sent up to the double a binghamton rumble ponies and he's been there ever since and in 72 games that he's played with them He is hitting 295, 341, 466. Now, here's the thing. His walk rate is lower than it was during his college days. It's currently 4.7%. And his strikeout rate has spiked a bit. It is currently 17% right now. So what's going on? His peripherals, they're shifting in one direction. Not the right direction. But his surface stats, they are basically... Better than they've ever been. So the most notable thing about his season right now is that his batted ball profile has changed pretty dramatically. We don't have access to his college batted ball profile. So I'm only using the 53 games that he played the Cyclones. But in a way, that's kind of better because the hitting environment in in college, even in a a pretty high-level conference like the SEC... It's gonna be different than in a professional league like um New York Penn League or double A this year, double AA Northeast Northeast. So in twenty nineteen with the Cyclones, he pulled the ball thirty-eight point eight excuse me, thirty point eight percent of the time. He went back up the middle twenty-three point three per cent of the time. And he went to the opposite field forty five point nine percent of the time. So he's going to the opposite field majority of the time. This season He's pulling the ball 45.6% of the time. He's going back out the middle 22.8% of the time. And he's going oppo 31.5% of the time. So that's basically a 15% increase to his pull percentage and a 15% drop to his opposite field percentage. So why is that noteworthy? Because 99.99999% of Mangum's power is to his pull side. Uh, either both slide. He is a switch hitter. After posting his 100 ISO in his college days and then his 049 with the Cyclones, he's currently, he currently has a 171 isolated slugging. His line drive rate is about the same, but he's hitting more balls in the air as opposed to in the ground. And it's happening, um, from both sides of the plate. As a right handed batter facing left handers, he is hitting 290, 346, 456 in. 217 at-bats with 18 doubles, 3 triples, and 4 homers, and a 1-5 to walk to strikeout rate. And then as a left-handed hitter facing righties, he's currently hitting 294, 327, 500 in 102 at-bats with 4 doubles, 1 triple, and 5 home runs. So basically almost identical from both sides of the plate, which is pretty good, what you want to see. So is his upside now increased is is that ceiling higher if it's permanent, what he's doing this year? sure, but the thing is, is it permanent um mangum, he started out the season pretty hot in May, he fell into a lull for most of June and July, and then he's been blazing hot in August, and ultimately one season really isn't enough data to say anything for sure, especially this season when the the entire minor leagues are in flux just because of the loss of all those teams and all those players and just Major League Baseball just kind of fucking around with everything with different rules and just making it a lot more difficult for us to kind of get data from things this year. So I assume that Mangum is going to start triple a even if he wasn't doing that great this year i was assuming that he's going to start triple a but given the fact how that that he's hitting so well he's definitely going to start in triple a and if he is able to keep this kind of hitting i think he's definitely going to get a major league call up next year in 2020 and could possibly be a, a contributor as like a fourth fifth outfield or whatever. Uh, I think that given his above average defense as a center fielder, he definitely would have gotten some kind of playing time in 2022, regardless. Um, but if he's able to continue hitting like this, if, if into 2022 and shows that these changes that he's made are things that are sustainable, you know, instead of just being a, a defensive replacement, maybe he'll have like a positive presence with the bat as well as the glove and he'll be more of like, a uh, Billy McKinney kind of replacement this year than like an Albert Omora kind of replacement this year. So hopefully good things are in Jake Mangum's future and these changes, these positive changes are hopefully legitimate and sustainable going forward. Hello everyone, this is Ken. And uh, one player that's uh, kind of changed the
1: conversation around his prospect status this year is uh, Mark Vientos, a third baseman who the Mets selected in the second round of the 2017 draft out of American Heritage High School in Plantation, Florida. Uh, Vientos was one of, if not the youngest, players in the draft. He uh, was just, I think, barely 17 um, when he you know, was drafted. Uh, so four years removed from being drafted, he's still just 21, um, which is crazy considering, you know, feel like he's been around forever at this point Uh, and despite being drafted a full two years before brett batty was drafted in 2019 vantos is still about two weeks younger so you know any um kind of panic about his performance at this point has got to be wildly premature uh given he's still just 21 um, so, after being drafted, the Mets assigned him to the GCL affiliate. And, um, you know, he performed pretty well there, especially for a kid of his age, um, before getting an end of season cup of coffee with the Kingsport Mets of the Appalachian League. Um, he went back to Kingsport in 2018 for the, the entire season and uh, generally excelled hitting roughly 32% above league average, 287, 389, 489, with 11 home runs and 262 plate appearances. And maybe most impressively <clears throat> most impressively was um, Vientos' plate discipline numbers. Uh, he managed he, to walk almost as much as he struck out uh, with a 14.1% walk rate against a 16.4% K rate, which is... Um, You know, particularly exciting and shows a pretty good command of the strike zone, despite being, you know, young for the level. Um, His performance in the Appalachian League kind of, you know, saw his stock rise um, and uh, saw him show up on a lot of uh, the Mets' top prospect lists. Um, The Mets aggressively promoted Vientos to the South Atlantic League for all of 2019, and there he kind of struggled a little bit. He was still pretty good um hitting a leak roughly league average 255 300 411 uh with 12 home runs in 454 plate appearances but some of his underlying numbers particularly the aforementioned plate discipline numbers um kind of showed some signs of um you know some some signs some causes for concern uh vientos strikeout rate jumped to almost twenty five percent at twenty four point two and uh, his walk rate previously you know an elite almost fifteen percent fell to just under five percent which is you know low for any level of baseball and um, you know there were a lot of caveats with his performance he was still very very young for re- relative to his competition he um, it was his first taste of full season ball. That's always hard for guys, but some of the the prospect shine kind of wore off um, with his sort of mediocre season. Um, Vientos, like everyone, lost all of twenty twenty to the the pandemic, and uh, you know got some time in spring training with the big league club before being assigned to double A to start the season. And um, for the first month, month and a half, he really, really struggled. Um, you know, he was striking out a lot, almost, uh, about 34.4% of the time he was striking out. His walk rate was still well under 10%, um, which coupled with the extremely high strikeout rate was, you know, worrisome. And, uh, he just wasn't really hitting the ball very hard. He, um, slashed 218, 279, 416, through his first 122 plate appearances of the year, uh, through the middle of June, uh, which was, I believe, uh, an 85 wRC plus, so, so not really what you want. But in the middle of June, Vientos really turned a corner. Since June 15th, he's hit 323, 391, 689 in 184 plate appearances, which is roughly 82 percent above league average. And has managed to, you know, get his strikeout rate well below 30. Um, striking out in just 24.5% of his plate appearances since, you know, June 15th. And uh, perhaps most excitingly, Vientos has really managed to get a lot more of his raw power into games. Since the middle of June, he's hit 17 home runs, bringing his total on the year all the way up to 22, which leads, you know, a system that has had a few guys break out in the power department. So really nothing to sneeze at. And um, he's brought his line for the season now up to 281, 4, 346, 580 in 306 plate appearances. Roughly 43% above league average, despite being almost three full years younger than the average double player. Well, it's also become a little clearer, clearer uh, this year that Vientos is likelier to end up a first baseman long term than one would like uh, for a player of his skill set. The development in Vientos' ability to get his raw power into games and his ability to keep his strikeout rate under control and at an acceptable level has, um, you know, gotten rid of some of the worries that people had coming off of his sort of mediocre 2019 in Colombia. Um, and, you know, should see his prospect status rise a little bit back to maybe where it was prior to uh, starting full season ball in 2019. Uh, So, yeah, Mark Vientos has really kind of impressed me and um, look forward to seeing what he can do moving
2: forward. So everyone who listens to this podcast knows the Mets system has not been good this year in terms of winning and in terms of developing much talent. Like, they struggled to do anything at the deadline because no one really wanted any other dudes. And they have just lost a lot of games. And it's been Brett Beatty and Francisco Alvarez and Ronnie Mauricio and friends, really. It's the prospect system this year because... Those are the guys who are getting better, and at least in Beatty and Alvarez's case, in Mauricio's case, he's he's a little below them in terms of development and everything else, but he's still a rather exciting prospect. But really, it's just them three and not much else. And so, when we were discussing like one guy to look at, it was kind of difficult. But the first person who came to mind, and honestly, the person who I think comes to, is the best bet for this, is um, Hayden Singer. Who is a catcher who split time between high A and double A this year. And his career line, the reason why, just looking at the sat line, first off, his career line is two sixty two, three fifty one, four hundred. Which is not great for a catcher in the minor leagues. Like that's a guy who rises up to triple A and gets playing time in the majors but isn't like a superstar. Um, he's not really someone who he's not really someone who you are super excited about. But then this year, he hit 289, 360, 473 over those two levels, including a very good 302, 362, 605 in Brooklyn and high A. So, the bat for someone, so to give you background on him, he was a defense first catching prospect. They took a few years ago, wasn't even a great hitter in college, 272, 359, 409, pretty much the same as he was in the minors. So, you kind of, everyone kind of knew, thought we knew what he was. That's six years of pretty much the same production at the dish, and a good solid catcher behind it is a guy who plays a few years, he comes up as a third, fourth catcher option, gets DFA'd, gets claimed on waivers by a team who needs a catcher, and then moves on to greener pastures, basically. So, on the other end, the reason why he's exciting is because the bat is finally taking steps forward that it didn't before. And with the bat taking steps forward that it didn't before, you go from a non-prospect to, in this Mets system, a top-15 prospect. And someone who, like, I'm not even, I'm not even penciling him in. I'm putting him in and pen in the top 15 for next year, unless they go crazy and start a rebuild and trade everyone and then the system gets better. But I don't think it, it, I don't think that's in the card. So we're going to have to roll with what we got as prospects here. And he's going to be one of the top 15 guys in the system just based on that alone. I mean, he was always a good, strong, defensive guy behind the plate. He frames well. He has an arm, everything. Like pretty much what you want from a defensive catcher. And then. On top of that, now the bat has improved enough where you see major league capabilities from it. Do I see a superstar in him? No. Do I see uh, even a starter? Probably not. I see someone who it's kind of a lazy comp because it just came through the system, but it's Tomas Nito type um, in that he is very much a guy who you keep on his pre-arb and arbitration deals as your backup catcher for a few, five six years, and then you deal. And then you let him go in free agency to get paid and then you bring someone else up. like that's really what he is to me is someone who is a nice second option behind the plate who will play good defense who will make good contact he doesn't have crazy pop and even showed that in his move up to double a his slugging went down because obviously he was slugging like nine like 600 in Brooklyn and then it went down to below that to equal what his season was but he's just a dude who I don't want to say it's exciting but it's intriguing because he's all of a sudden like a guy when Tomas Nito moves on in free agency because he's going to get more than you'd likely want to pay him, then your catching prospects could be... Both of your catchers in the minor leagues, in, in the major leagues, could be guys who you brought through your system. And Francisco Alvarez and Hayden Singer. Like, that is absolutely a possibility. And also, catchers are weird, and you might be able to trade him for something that's a little better than you would normally get for a prospect of this caliber because he could hit a little, and he's a good defender. So it's just, it's nice to see... Mid-tier guys make a next jump jump up to be major league cal- caliber players rec- that they weren't before. Just because it's it's hard to find those guys and it's hard to find catchers. Like the Mets gave forty million dollars to James McCann and he's been bad. And yeah, like they should, probably should have just uh, not probably they should have just signed JT Realmuto. But also McCann was sought after because he had what two good half seasons as a backup catcher in in Chicago. Like, catching is so rare that it kind of makes GMs, even in a era of baseball that's way more frugal and way cheaper than it should be and it could be. But GMs kind of have to go the extra mile to get a catcher if they think the catcher is the next big thing. So to have a backup catcher that you don't have to pay two, three, four, five million dollars to, to really just solidify your rotate, to not, not, well, of course not solidify or the rotation which help solidify that catching tandem that you'll have. And then really allow you to just spend money elsewhere. Cause you don't have to pay a backup catcher. Like if the Mets developed more backup middle infielders and fourth outfielders, then they wouldn't have to spend the $5 million on like Kevin Pillar of the world. And even though Jonathan Villar has been good, like you don't have to sign him too, or you can sign him in tandem with someone else. Like that's why Luis Guillerme is so valuable. And so just guys like that are valuable in the system to have, even if they're not going to be the next superstar, they don't have to be, not everyone does. Because you will develop guys like that. You will develop the really good players. Just It'll happen with, if you're bad, if you have a bad season, like the Mets could potentially end up now because they're around 500 now. It could go either way. Like maybe they bottom out this year and end up with a top 10 pick and like 12, whatever they were, would take with the rocker deal. And then with the rocker non signing. And then bam, you have like more top end talent. But you still need the middle of it. You need the middle of it for trades. You need the middle of it to help bolster your major league team while you spend money elsewhere so yeah i just think he's someone that's worth paying attention to and now especially now after the season really i mean he's hitting a double a so he'll be in triple a next year i'm assuming that's going to be a definite help in case nito or mccann because mccann has not been healthy and nito has had a little injuries he might see playing time next season if he's hitting and the guys get hurt because of how valuable catchers are and how hard they are to find them so yeah just Hayden Singer, is not he's not a sexy pick, but it's hard to find a sexy pick in the Mets system right now. But he's a, definitely one who's improved more than most people thought, I think. And he's really put, put himself from organizational depth to a guy I could see playing a few years on the majors.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is our show for the week. And if anyone has any questions, comments, or whatever, you can send us an email at our email address from ComplexToQueens at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and shoot us questions there. I'm at Steve Seiper. Lucas is at Elvlahos343. Ken is at Ken1191. And Thomas is at said Met Season SZN. And please note that whatever you email to us or whatever you tweeted us, we will not thumbs down you. You don't have to worry. From Complex to Queens, it's a safe space. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Rate and review it. And of course, thank you for listening. We will be back next week. So until then, love the Mets. Love the Mets.